This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today on the download, a relatively mixed bag for what is happening in the stock markets right now. Uh, We've seen kind of a large, uh, relatively uniform slide in most of the securities markets with the Dow Jones and S&P all losing money over the past uh, roughly six or seven days. Uh, A lot of different things attributable to this uh, market cooldowns, less than lackluster uh, earnings reports from the first. Uh, earnings season for all the publicly traded companies, but just really kind of a big mixed thing. Still large inflationary woes uh, there. We're seeing about 40-year highs uh, on many of the inflation indexes, such as the CPI and other general factors that play into uh, just what exactly the cost of money is right now. We're seeing people spend uh, month over month almost $3 billion more the U.S. consumer is spending from uh, one month into the next for the same amount of goods consumed. So inflation is still very high, cooling off people's interest in actually investing money as they are trying to be a little bit more spendthrift with their spending. But again, it is just kind of a mixed bag on a lot of different things that are affecting securities prices right now. But that's not to say that there isn't money to be made and markets aren't adjusting up on some indications as well. Uh, we have stock openings a bit higher today as of 5-3 Tuesday as of the recording of this as the Fed is uh, set to hold policy meetings over the next week. So we might be seeing some good policy changes or at least some positive impact policy changes coming out of the Federal Reserve in the next few weeks. So definitely something to watch and stocks are tending to turn a little higher on this news. Uh, not as much of a slide. We saw almost a three 350 point slide between Friday trading and Monday bell close. Uh, with uh, different things going on. So seeing stuff trend up this morning definitely is a good indicator as some hopefulness for what's going to come out of this meeting. Some interesting news out of investment house giant Fidelity. They are poised to start allowing Bitcoin investment in 401k plans that they are the uh, administrator of. Uh, Fidelity being one of the largest retirement plan administrators in the world, especially with regards to domestic 401k plans. This is seen as a very big benefit to some and a very uh, troubling concern to some people. Now, Bitcoin obviously is a, and cryptocurrencies in general can be very volatile assets, but with the wide adoption and changes to tax laws regarding the tax lot accounting that has to be done and the uh, buy, sell, and trade restrictions that have been imposed on them, being able to do these in tax advantaged accounts is a very big benefit, something that we've been promoting here at Advanta since about 2017. So seeing large investment giants such as Fidelity get on board with allowing these types of investments in retirement plans, at least from our perspective, I believe is a very good thing. It's going to help with adoption and it's also going to help people keep more of their hard-earned money if they're making money in cryptocurrency as opposed to having to pay that out in taxes. So uh, pretty good news coming out of Fidelity with regard to their adoption of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency investments for 401k plans. Again, this would have to be allowed by the plan trustee, but at least it's opening up the investment option to those plans as opposed to just being um, strictly, um, you know, kind of across the board disallowed by the plan administrator. Pfizer beat projections uh, of their of their revenues and 
uh, earnings due mainly in part to the uh, their antiviral treatments. Now, they were uh, poised to see a, a stock decrease and a uh, share price decrease as, anal- as analysts had predicted that they would start slowing down from their COVID level uh, like uh, their, their COVID highs. However, they still managed to beat their projections on their earnings and their revenues based mainly on their antiviral treatments for the COVID-19 disease or COVID-19 virus. So that is good news coming out of biotech. Now with cosmetics, it's a little bit of a different story. We're seeing uh, several different companies, namely Estee Lauder, seeing their stock fall as they missed revenue goals for Q1 of this year. Now their earnings were okay, but their general, their overall revenues missed the mark. So kind of a mixed bag coming out of the financial from several different uh, uh, cosmetic companies. Estee Lauder kind of leading the pack with that as the single largest uh, share percentage drop of any of those uh, types of companies. So interesting to watch and see that there is uh, kind of a a general perception on certain market segments, namely cosmetics, that is uh, just kind of uh, just just not really jiving with the rest of what the uh, the markets are doing, but they, are, of course, are losing money, which is a little bit in line with what's been going on a little bit recently. Now, electric vehicle producer Rivian uh, gets preliminary support from the state of Georgia for a new manufacturing plant. This is going to be very good news for any of those that are interested in the expansion of the ele- electric vehicle segment. I know at least I'm excited for it as being a a car guy my entire life. I've been you know, very into automobiles. Seeing the greater prevalence and production and competition in the electric vehicle segment, I think will only do good things to further the adoption and technology development in this particular space. And to see it coming to the Southeast, of course, we're located in Largo, Florida, uh, growing up in North Florida and South Georgia. Good to see that there's going to be hopefully good paying jobs and good manufacturing support um, from a company like this coming to the Southeast and not not just places like Texas and California is very exciting, but also this is helping to prop up the share price of the electric vehicle manufacturers. So hopefully uh, that if this does get going off down the road, it will do nothing but good things for the market segment, their share price, and of course the adoption of electric vehicles and giving people more options for emission reduction vehicles if they want to pursue that avenue for their transportation. Silver prices are sliding a little bit as the dollar adjusts to rally on Forex markets. Kind of an interesting aspect to look at considering that gold, uh, it's you know, relatively uh, seen as its counterpart in the precious metal segment has been trending higher uh, in early trading today, despite the slide for uh, silver. So it's kind of an interesting dichotomy to see between the two of them that there's a slide in silver price while a slight increase in day trading on gold. So not exactly sure what this means. I am by no means a precious metal expert, but it's, you know, it's, I like to bring interesting points to people that are listening to this. And that certainly is an interesting point that we're seeing a a price disparity between the two when one would normally think that precious metals would tend to rise or fall together, but that certainly is not the case today. And lastly, uh, in our in tech news, Western Digital, the global giant in storage solutions. So think about the hard drive in your computer or laptop uh, and memory modules. Uh, this company, you know, even if you maybe haven't heard of Western Digital, you probably own at least a few of their products, considering they make uh, besides. Uh, besides a few different companies such as Seagate and Crucial, uh, make pretty much almost all of the memory 
uh, that is used by computers in the entire world. So again, very large company, uh, but is they are in the midst of talks with Elliott Investment Management to spin off their flash department. Now, flash memory, for those of you that aren't familiar, uh, hard drives have a spinning disk that spins up and you write data to it. Uh, flash memory would be things like that are in your phone that doesn't have a hard drive. It's uh, memory on a chip or MOC. Uh, so they have a large department that is focused strictly on flash memory, and they are anticipating a spinoff of this, or at least they are being uh, kind of jockeyed in position to do so by Elliott Investment Management and a $1 billion offering plan. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens with this. Now, this will have a lot of downstream effects with regard to supply and uh, pricing for uh, memory modules for all sorts of things. Think your home desktop computers, your laptops, your phones, all sorts of different things might be affected downstream by this type of spinoff. So it's very important to watch when it's uh, something, you know, you wouldn't think of a memory module or a hard drive as a raw material, but uh, as you would something like copper or iron. But when you look at computers, uh, this, you know, definitely kind of is more of a raw material aspect, and this could directly affect pricing for a lot of things downstream. So although it may seem to be a little bit of a, a tangent to look at, and not maybe necessarily something as big as, uh, you know, precious metal trading on an open market, it's something definitely to watch out for and to see how this is going to affect other users and manufacturing downstream. So this has been the download. Thanks for joining. Today on the What Is, What Is a Sort Squeeze? Now, I don't believe this was covered in any of the uh, previous editions of the podcast, but we uh, kind of came to the podcast a little bit later after there were a lot of the, quote, meme stock uh, trading, namely on AMC and GameStop uh, trades. But one of the big terms that was thrown around a lot, and I think it's important for people to understand, is short squeezing stocks utilizing uh, various option methods. Now, this people may just kind of read the headlines and see that trading has doubled, quadrupled, or even uh, quintupled a share price, but it's not necessarily just a volume of trades that do this. It's namely people trading in option contracts that help to drive share prices so high and typically also see them dip very low. So sometimes people, you might be hearing the term short squeeze or a squeeze trade. Now, what is this? So what is a short squeeze? It is an unusual condition that triggers rapidly rising prices in a stock or other trade security. For a short squeeze to occur, the security must have an unusual degree of short sellers holding positions in it. So people that are anticipating that the stock will fall in value. The short squeeze begins when the price jumps higher unexpectedly. The condition plays out a significant measure of the short sellers coincidentally decide to cut their losses and exit the positions. So this means that the price of the stock is rising inversely to the anticipated downturn in the price that the short sellers have, clo- have opened their positions on. A short squeeze accelerates a stock price rise as short sellers bail out to cut their losses. So in this case, people that normally were anticipating a fall in share price are then in turn going to start uh, selling their shares to cut their losses. And contrarian investors try to anticipate short squeezes and buy stocks that demonstrate a strong short interest. So kind of an interesting aspect of what can occur when people are anticipating one thing and something goes another direction. I can cause wild 
stock price swings in either positive or negative direction. So if you hear about something having a short squeeze on it or are looking at something or trying to identify why a stock price might be rapidly rising or falling, it might be important to understand that something uh, such as this, where people may, be, may have been anticipating a price decrease, but the price is rapidly increasing, might be causing a secondary market sell-off of some type of securities contract. So this has been The What Is. Alrighty, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today I have with us Chris Larson with Next Level Income and my colleague, Corey Dayharsh. Thank you both very much for being on with us today. Gentlemen, great to see you. Alex, thanks for having me. Chris, thanks for joining us. Awesome. Awesome. So we've had a lot of commercial multifamily people on the podcast um, and everyone kind of brings their own flavor to this. And I think Chris really has an interesting um, experience in his life of how he kind of came came into it. We have a lot of people that, you know, maybe started just saying, hey, I'm going to take a crack at real estate or, you know, I did I did single family and I didn't really see the scalability, you know, buying one deal at a time versus essentially getting 30 doors on one deal. <clears throat> so Chris has kind of an interesting background. I'll let him talk to you about that a little bit because it started in engineering and evolve from there to where you're at now. So give us a little bit of background on kind of the cool pathway that you took into your real estate investing career. Absolutely, Alex. And um, by the way, if you're listening today, I got a special gift for you. You can get a free copy of my book, nextlevelincome.com. Click on the book link. I'll send you a copy if you put your address in. Um, again, it's nextlevelincome.com. So yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, Alex. I, I recently exited uh, 18-year career in the medical device um, field. And a lot of people say, well, Chris, when did you start as a real estate investor? Cause you know, they wanted to know like, Hey, how did you, how are you able to transition out, create enough passive income to do that? Cause I, I did well during my career. Um, the thing is I actually started as a real estate investor when I was 21, I was in college. So I was racing bicycles. I went to Virginia tech for engineering, but really I went to Virginia tech to race my bike and become a professional cyclist. Um, along the way, um, my best friend passed away. Uh, in between my freshman and sophomore years of college, I raced for another year after he passed away. And then, you know, I, I was in a race. It was actually his uh, memorial race, and I won it for the second year in a row. I was in great, great shape. Um, I won a lot of races that year. I was a, I was a category one cyclist, uh, which basically means you can become a professional. My team actually went, went pro after I um, left them um, the following year. But I thought it was just kind of silly to be riding my bike around when there was so much more to do in life. And my best friend was 18 when he died. I was 19. I thought, well, if I died tomorrow, would I really be happy and satisfied with what I was doing with my life? And the answer was no. So I quit racing. I went back to school. So here I am. I'm an engineering student. I'm a junior in college. I don't want to be an engineer. I, I quit racing, which was my, my passion for my entire adult life. But I did know one thing. I knew that if you want to live life to the fullest, you need financial independence. You need money to do it. So I set off to become an investor. I started as a trader. I was trading in, in um, day trading, and I was making about $5,000 a month trading in the stock market when I was a junior in college, which was, um, it was, it was exciting. It was also extremely stressful. And I, I had many sleepless nights. You know, I was like trying to you know, do research or figure out what the trade was or, or worried about a trade or I'd lose money. And, you know, it, that was not fun. 
So I thought I'm laying in bed one morning at 3 a.m. I thought, well, there's got to be a better way. So I ended up reading over 250 books. I ended up getting an MBA in portfolio management and finance. And I ultimately decided that real estate was going to be my path towards financial independence. And I bought my first property age 21. However, I ran out of money pretty quickly. And I decided that I need to go find a career that would allow me to continue to invest. And I settled on sales and I was fortunate enough to find out about medical device sales. So I did that. I became a really um, excited about the industry. I, I enjoyed uh, almost all the time that I spent in it, but it's a very grueling, challenging field. I was on call for 12 of the 18 years that I was um, in that, in that business. And fortunately, you know, we, we were disciplined and we continued to save and invest. And, you know, it started as, you know, a, a small single family residential por portfolio. We transitioned into a commercial portfolio of properties starting about 10 years ago. We started as investors in the multifamily space. And today we now um, own or control over 3000 doors. That's really awesome. Yeah. Uh, props to you on, on, on cycling. I'm a, uh, a, a very avid cyclist myself. So I always appreciate it. Yeah. I get to, get to talk to someone that likes to uh, turn the gears over. So um, that's cool on that. And uh, even though I am an FSU fan, I won't hold the Virginia tech uh, graduation <laughs> against you, um, but it's you guys, uh, you guys smashed us um, the year that uh, we went to the, uh, the sugar bowl. So um, was that when y'all had Marcus Vick? Uh, it was Michael Vick, who funny, funnily enough, I actually met in a pet store um, <laughs> at one point. So, well, anyway. it's fun, funny how life uh, can throw you curveballs <laughs> like that. Um, going from being a, an amateur uh, cyclist to a medical device salesman to now getting into syndicating real estate deals. So, you know, I think a very common thread is that you know you started with the single family, and I'm sure that showed you, you know, with an analytical background that you know the scalability and you know. <clears throat> Uh, you know, throughput of doing single family is just, you know, it doesn't scale into what you can do in multifamily, you know, buying, you know, you said you wait, was it how many uh, doors do you control now? Over 3000. So over 3000. Um, and how many like individual, like, like properties is that scaled across? Yeah. So it's uh, today it's, it's over a dozen properties. So a dozen pr individual, like properties versus 3000 individual properties. So that's what I like to get across oh, yeah. to a lot of people is the big attractiveness to this space is that there's the scalability is there for you to take, you know, what you've understood, you know, once you get kind of cut your teeth in the basics of single family of, you know, understanding, you know, rents and identifying tenants and kind of areas that you'd like to be involved in. The scalability is really cool to go into multifamily because there's not a whole lot of incremental steps. It's, you know, stepping from single family to multifamily is, you know, kind of like going from the, the Honda Civic to, you know, a Lamborghini without going through a bunch of different, you know, intermediary cars. So it's, it's cool to see that. And it's something I really like to hammer home with people. Now, kind of coming from, from your experience, you know, if I was to come to you say, Chris, you know, uh, you know, I've like, just like you, you know, I bought my first single family home. It did well, you know, I had a good exit um, and now I got some cash available, but I'd really like to take that step in scalability, you know, from a very, you know, introductory standpoint, you know, I'm coming to you asking this question, what are some, some things that you would say are a good toolkit for people just starting out or, or, you know, someone that might even have that conversation with you, like I'm asking right now. 
Yeah. So that's a, that's a fantastic question. I think you need to start with what your interest is and, you know, do you want to be an active investor or a passive investor? It's really hard to be a successful passive investor in residential real estate because the, the, the total profit isn't there. And like you said, Alex, the scalability isn't there. And actually that's one of the points I highlight in my book is, you know, if you talk to almost anybody that owns more than a few residential properties, they will tell you it's, it's just not fun because you're dealing with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of individual headaches um, with those properties. I have a coaching client and he has about 60 properties and he basically breaks even at the end of each month, you know, just from all the turnover, the maintenance, everything. Um, but then I know other people that have had hundreds of doors and, you know, they built out scale around that, but they started as very active investors. Um, so, you know, if you, if you, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, that might have just been noise on my end. Oh, um, so, you know, if you, if you want to be active and you don't have a lot of money to get started, I will say it's hard to beat, you know, buying like a fix fixer upper that you can then rent out or um, buy a single home or a condo or a property that you can do Airbnb. Like that's, that's a good place to start for a lot of people. But once you have some capital, so in your example, Alex, so let's say you buy a property, um, you've held it for a while. And like I did, you, know, you sell it, you have, you have a six figure exit. You say, okay, what do I want to do with this money? You know, do I want to go buy two or four more single family properties or do I want to invest? And that's the benefit, whether you're buying a small multifamily property, which I would say like under 50 doors, or you're investing in a syndication, for instance, in a larger property, a larger multifamily property, you know, the benefits are that you can have the exact same strategy and continue to scale. So whether you own hundred doors, you know, a thousand doors, 10,000 doors, you can basically employ the same strategy. You can have the same management team. You just have to scale, you know, the people in that place. The nice thing is you get the same benefits typically as if you were a direct owner, you get income, you get appreciation, you get depreciation. And actually what really swayed me. And again, I talk about this point in my book as well. If you're a high income earner, if you're accredited and you're making a lot of money, you don't need to be paying more taxes. I mean, I would argue that the way the government's run, most people would say, hey, I'd prefer not to pay more taxes. I'd prefer to you know, do more things with my own money. So you retain a lot of the tax benefits in multifamily real estate that you don't always retain if you own just a single property. Um, so again, start with, do you want to be active or do you want to be passive? And then you know, decide, okay, is this the right strategy for me? But from a multifamily perspective, um, it's a lot easier to be a passive investor to scale. I mean, you can, you can be a part owner in you know, all 3,000 doors, for instance, and the properties that we have, and you don't have to go you know, fix a toilet, collect rent, do any of that, and you can get similar returns typically. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm assuming when you're saying active versus passive, you're really kind of referring to taking a general partner or a limited partner position at a deal, or is it something more specific than that? Oh, great. Great question. Yeah. So to clarify, um, so first off, you know, if you go buy a single family rental, if you go buy a house, you know, you are, you are probably going to talk to the real estate agent. You're going to put the down payment. You're going to close with the attorney. You're going to sign on the loan. Like, you know, you're going to probably manage the property or even if you don't manage the property, even if you hire a property manager, you still oversee the management. So I had property managers and guess what? They still called me. Hey, Chris, um, we need a new HVAC system. Can you approve this? Um, hey, Chris, you know, we have, you know, these three uh, new tenants, you know, to, to look at the property, which one would you prefer 
Um, hey, you know, but they typically don't call you and say, hey, you want to raise rent. So you got to say, hey, I'd like to raise rents this year. What is the market looking like? You have to be in charge of all those things, even if you're not actively managing the property from day to day. So, all right, so let's just recap that. If you're active, you have to find the property, you have to oversee management of the property, and you are liable for the risk in the property, okay? As a passive investor, so as a general partner like I am in these syndications, you have, you have certain responsibilities. But as a limited partner, you are shielded from a lot of this, the things that I just mentioned as an active um, investor in smaller properties. So you don't have to pick you know, um, the uh, finishes. You, know, you don't have to um, oversee you know, the residents that are moving in. You don't have to approve any repairs that are being made. And a big thing for a lot of high incomers, we have probably 25% of our investors are, are doctors, surgeons, they don't want any more risk. You know, they, they have the risk of their practice of um, working with patients on a day-to-day -day basis. They're shielded from liability in the property. And the other thing is the, you're also shielded from uh, the liability on the loan as well, because typically we have non-recourse debt, which means the debt is covered by the property. So the bank wouldn't come after the investors. They're going to take the property over instead. They may come after the general partners if there's um, bad actors or, or some issues like that. Um, but that's, that's very rare. And certainly um, that's not something you would expect, especially working with a group like ours. Yeah. Fraud, fraud clauses are pretty standard baked into um, non-recourse debt. <clears throat> and, Absolutely. you know, not to get too far into that, because I find the financing part of this really interesting to myself, but that's more of a graduate level class um, on, on something past what we're doing here. So um, to circle back, so let's say an investor now, okay, they, they're kind of making up their mind saying, all right, you know, do I want that more active role? Do I want the more passive role? Now, besides just, you know, like, let's say an extent of liability and just the extra work that it takes, you know, instead of me just saying, okay, this, the, the deal sheet looks good, you know, the prospectus, the outlays, everything looks good for me. I'm just going to plug away my, you know, 50, 100, whatever it is, uh, unitized investment as a limited partner, um, you know, or, you know, take on that general partner role. Which one, you know, what are what are the differences that you typically see in, you know, return on your investment, you know, in, in a typical scenario? Obviously, it's going to vary from deal to deal. It has to deal with cash flows, expenses, rent rolls, turnover, everything like that. So notwithstanding, you know, the variability, you know, just as a general kind of rule of thumb in looking at like the, the human capital side of things, me saying, okay, here's, you know, my tolerance for, you know, putting up with X, Y, and Z, you know, just time sucks. Uh, versus being a limited versus general partner, what in general can people look at by saying, hey, if I'm going to step into this position, this is what I can kind of expect to make on a return from a deal versus just being passive? Because obviously there's benefits with being the more active investor, you know, there's, there, or, or there people wouldn't do it. Everyone would just be a limited partner and they let BlackRock do general partner stuff. So. Absolutely. Yeah. They may be taking over the world here, but um, okay. So I think you said that the key point here, Alex, which is uh, in, investment returns are going to be specific from deal to deal. Um, so, you know, so we don't have guaranteed returns and every deal is going to look a little bit different. And, you know, our multifamily look, deals look different from our self-storage deals, from our uh, mobile home park deals, from our car wash deals. Um, and I will say that like a car wash is going to be an operational business in addition to the real estate. So it's, it's very different. Um, but let me talk about my personal targets. Okay. So as a passive investor, I typically want to see, you know, mid to high single digit cash flow from an investment. So say five, six, 7%. For instance, we have a 7% preferred return to investors 
on most of our deals. So that means the investors are going to get 100% of the first 7% of the return from the property. Um, and that can be the actual cash flow. It can be also a combination of the actual cash flow and appreciation if, if the property doesn't produce that 7%. Um, I'm, also, I'm looking for at least teen level return. So above 12% returns as a passive investor. That's me personally. Um, my target for active investments is basically going to be double that. So if I'm an active investor, if I'm actively participating, and that would be either as a GP or if I'm going out and doing my own deals. And we certainly do some deals here around Asheville. We own and operate two short-term rentals, two Airbnbs. Uh, we're working on a, on a residential development. We have a seven-unit office downtown. I want to see at least double-digit cash returns. If I'm an active investor, I'm signing on the loan. If I'm dealing with phone calls, talking to attorneys, doing all that. And I want to see you know, mid, uh, say, 24 25% total returns or above if I'm an active investor. And from everything that I see, I think those are pretty realistic targets. Um, if you're coming into, you know, either, either as a LP or a GP, or again, like we were kind of saying as an active or a passive investor. Now with regard to that, and, and I want to, let's get into cost a little bit because, you know, you're factoring in, you know, the, the benefit of just sitting back and, and collecting your money as the limited partner and the active, you know, obviously you have all the other things that go into valuing your time, effort and expenditure that go into that you know, much higher return, again, with, you know, added degrees of, of risk on liability. And, you know, there's typically not much of a risk on uh, loan default, but, you know, the, you know, crazy things happen. If you have a couple of general partners, you never know what's going to happen, but, you know, choose your people wisely. But as far Absolutely. as the, the capital outlay to be involved in either of them, um, you know, what does it necessarily look like in, in a position, you know, limited partners are typically going to be unitized at whatever, you know, the offering is, it's going to be, you know, one, one limited partner interest is going to be, you know, 10, 15, 20, $50,000. Uh, it's a little bit different with, with the active side though. Um, can you explain how those capital outlays work and like what it looks like as far as a cost basis to be involved in either side? Yeah, that's, a, that's a good, that's a really good question. And um, so if you want to be a passive investor in most deals, um, like we typically are doing what are called Reg D 506C offerings, which are available to accredited investors. Um, and yeah, I'm sure a lot of listeners are accustomed to this, but that means you're making $200,000 a year or more as an individual, $300,000 or, or more a year as a couple, or a net worth of a million dollars, not counting your home. And typically in a passive um, LP investment um, in a syndication, you're looking at a minimum investment of around fifty thousand dollars, I've seen you know some as low as twenty five thousand, um, but fifty or a hundred thousand is is kind of a good um, you know um, assumption to make if you're looking to become a passive investor. Um, is a GP um, now? There's you asked kind of two questions in there, but as a GP, you know if you're actually signing it on on uh, a loan, you are talking typically about a net worth of five million or ten million dollars. And the liquid and liquid funds of seven figures or more. So, you know, if, if you're looking at these bigger deals, you're talking about, you know, pretty significant financial balance sheets. So if, if you meet those metrics and you're interested in becoming part of a general partner team, aside from like the operating team, you know, it's actually going in and operating it um, or actually finding a deal and bring it. So those are the other ways you, you can run a deal. I say you can either run a deal, you can find a deal or you can bring capital to a deal. Those are kind of the three things 
that you can do as and, and bring value as a general partner in the space. Yeah, absolutely. And you talked about the three different parts of a general partner deal. And I know there's people out there that make a lot of money just by having a high net worth that can sign those loans, um, which I think is kind of a cool gig. Um, you know, that's, yeah. that's just how you make your money is that you just become a general partner and sign on the dotted line. And so long as no one does anything sketchy, you know, well, you just sit back and make your return because even if the loan goes belly up, it's not a recourse, but you kind of brought up another cool aspect of that. You know, a lot of people, obviously just by, you know, general numbers and assumptions, there's not a whole lot of people that meet that, you know, higher net worth metric of saying, okay, I'm just going to come in and be the capital backer. But you brought up an interesting point of, you know, you said you can uh, finance the deal, you can find a deal. Now you don't have to be an accredited investor to find a deal. Um, so bringing, you know, for people that are maybe getting started, you know, if let's say they didn't necessarily have that great exit, or maybe they had a good exit, but they only, let's say they made 50 grand and they had another 25 of discretionary stuff. So they have 75 grand to start. They're not accredited. They have some capital. They have maybe some time on their hands. You don't have to be an accredited investor to be a general partner. Let's say if you're going out and finding a deal and bringing it in, correct? That's right. Yeah. So I was, um, I have a coaching client. He's young. He's Oh, I started working with him. I think he was 23 years old. And, you know, we, we kind of walked through, you know, what would make the most sense for him to become a general partner. And, you know, he was making um, just a few thousand dollars a month at the time. And he didn't have a ton of capital. So he's, you know, he's not going to come into a partnership with a big balance sheet. Um, he didn't have any experience operating deals. And what I mean is, you know, if you want to operate a deal, you probably are maybe start out working for a property management company. So we spoke about that. But what he did have was a system to find properties because he was already doing that in the residential space. So he had the system of finding owners, talking to brokers. He had a direct mailing system and he, he was going out and finding deals. That is very worthwhile, especially in a market like today when a lot of deals are done off market. Um, and let me, let me touch on one other point. I meant to address this earlier, Alex. You know, you have to also ask yourself, you know, if you're a surgeon, you're making $500 or more an hour at your, at your specialty um, or, or anything else. There's a lot of people that make, you know, really good money. You know, you have to ask yourself, is, is it worth devoting your time to this? It took my first partner and I over nine months to find our first deal, get our first deal done. And we partnered and split the profit and the, um, the, uh, the management fees with the group that we originally started with and invested with. So you're probably going to spend about a, a year finding you know, your first deal. And you're probably not going to make a lot of money off that first deal. So you consider it almost like an apprenticeship. You know, so I, I talk in my book about you know, spending, say, two to three years of you know, building a system, finding deals. You know, it's going to be um, a lot of investors aren't going to want to invest with you if it's your first deal. So it's going to take a lot longer, you know, to, to raise capital. I mean, just to put things into context, I mean, I'll raise more in one day than it took me to raise, um, than it took me a year to, to raise, you know, for our first deal. And that's not, I mean, I think the last deal we did, I think I raised three times um, what I raised for our first deal in, in a day. So, yeah. you know, it takes a while to build up to that and you have to build systems and do that. And I would say in, in my business, I probably, you know, if you take the, the cost of my time, it probably took me three or four years before I actually produced a true profit um, from the syndication side of the business, adding everything up. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that that kind of goes into how much work it can be on the general partner side. That also correlates directly into how many general partners are typically on a deal. How many on a, on an average deal are general um, in that position? Um, I mean, we so I have three main partners that I work with. So it's typically um, four. And, you know, there's there's occasionally a couple other partners um, that we bring in depending on it. So again, a car wash deal, maybe four of us, you know, a multi uh, self storage deal, we have um, two people on our self storage team. Um, you know, so that may, you know, that may be um, a few more, you know, than that, because we have um, more people that are on the team finding the deals, running the deals and doing those. Yeah, so things. like a low of three to maybe a top of seven, maybe. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good range. And you will, I mean, yeah, any more than I mean, you know, if, if you're if you're looking at a deal and there's like 10 general partners, like what are 10 general partners doing on a deal? Um, yeah. You know, so if you're looking at deals, you know, it's not it's not uncommon. Uh, like our mobile home, um, last mobile home park we did, I think there was uh, there was four of us uh, that put that deal together. Um, you know, so that's you know that's reasonable. Four, five, six uh, gotcha. general partners. If if they're bigger operations, you know, then you may have say, you know, you, you may have more general partners. Um, and just depending on the structure. So just make sure you understand that you understand who the general partners are and what they're doing. And by the way, if you're just signing on a loan, um, it, it's, it's a lot more than that. Like there is risk. Um, so, you know, you should certainly understand how to underwrite deals. You should, you know, have been investing and um, kind of tag along on some deals before you just go and, you know, bring your balance sheet to, to a deal and, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. put your, uh, stick your, uh, we'll call it sticking your neck out. Um, I might, I might, I might say something different. And if it wasn't a mixed, mixed audience, <laughs> I can, I can definitely understand. I mean, you're talking about, you know, you start adding in a third comma to these deals and uh, it's oh, yeah. a lot, a lot, a lot of risk. Um, you know, so some, definitely some heavy stuff you're dealing with. And then as far as how many limited partners are in on a deal, you know, that's just however many you need to raise the capital more or less to, to be oversimplified. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point too. Like, um, I mean, we have a deal we're doing now. I think there's, I think there's, um, you know, six limited partners, um, you know, and then seven, including myself, because I invest in all the deals we do. Um, whereas, you know, we've, we've raised uh, money for deals that are over a hundred million dollars and we may have, you know, over 200 limited partners in those deals because, you know, we may be raising $30 million. So, you know, again, that's, you know, as a limited partner, that, that shouldn't be alarming to have, you know, that many limited partners. It actually can be comforting if you know that a group has, you know, that many relationships and they can raise money from that many people that they have a track record with. Yeah, um, absolutely. So it all depends on the size of the deal. Yeah. And I would say just from my own personal standpoint, I would be a little bit hesitant about, you know, involving myself in an investment that had so many people that were in a decision-making capacity for it. You know, I'd much rather have the conversation of the stewardship of my money going on between four people than 10, where it's a lot easier for, you know, consolidation of, of efforts and, trajectory to go with four people than saying, oh, well, now you have 10 personalities going in for something. So that's something I haven't ever really kind of thought about or really had brought up is just, you know, looking at how many, uh, you know, cooks are in the kitchen, if you will, um, on on doing something like that could could potentially be a red flag. So you brought I, I up- agree. And I'll, I'll, I'll add to that. And I apologize for cutting you off here. But, you know, also one one general partner can be a red flag as well. What if something happens to that general partner who's going to who's going to carry the torch? So, you know, you want to, you know, if you look at it like, um, you know, like a stool or a chair or table, you know, it's, it's a lot more stable if you have, you know, a few general partners that each have a defined role. If something happens to one of them or decides, you know, this isn't their thing, 
um, you know, there can be a, a buyout clause and that group can continue. Whereas if there's, I've seen groups with like one or two general partners where one goes one way, one goes the other way and they dissolve the whole portfolio. And I've had investors come to me and say, Hey, we want to come work with you now because there's basically no, no business left for them to um, be involved in. So that's, that also goes to the importance of, of knowing and working with multiple operators. Yeah. Now that kind of, so a few good points that we've kind of broached so far is, you know, understanding, you know, the scalability of multifamily um, coming in, identifying, you know, your risk tolerance and your activity level versus, you know, the position, whether you want to be a limited for a general partner and what that means and the ability for a non-accredited investor to bring in the human capital side of things for maybe being involved as a general partner for those maybe that want to get started and have, you know, the time and the, the effort expenditure, but maybe not the capital. Now, with regard to the underlying asset, because again, to circle back for people listening, you know, we're talking about commercial properties. A lot of people will say commercial multifamily, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, and we'll get into some of the stuff that you invest in and some interesting things as well. But that can be, you know, when people talk about, you know, syndicating for commercial property, it encompasses everything commercial. So typically that's going to be four or more conjoined units or industrial properties, uh, manufacturing facilities, uh, everything from like self-storage, trailer parks, uh, car washes, and all these different kinds of things. So when it comes to the underlying asset, do you think it's kind of a good idea for the people investing to have a good idea of the underlying asset class? Um, or what kind of importance would you place on that uh, You know, for, for a limited partner? Obviously, the general partners need to be consummate experts in the underlying assets of the investment structure they're selling or raising capital for, depending on you know, the way you're framing it, but, you know, as a limited partner, what degree of expertise or knowledge do you need to have on that underlying asset? Yeah. So great question. So um, when I talked to, like, if, if you came to me as a limited partner, um, Alex and Corey and said, Hey, like, give me your, give me your algorithm. Give me kind of your flow. And again, I think like an engineer, so, you know, forgive me if I'm being a little, a little too analytical, but um, this is kind of how I, I, I think, and I, I walk through this in my book as well. So I look at it from a high level and I go down and this is, this is how I chose my career. This is how we chose to live in Asheville, North Carolina. This is how we choose our investments. Um, it's, it's been working for um, over two decades now. So here's how it works. Number one, you have to look at the overall demographics. So here's how the economy works. The economy works supply and demand. The more demand there is for something, then the higher the price, the better the returns are for that. Interest rates, why, why do interest rates go up? Because there's more demand for money. People wanna buy stuff, they wanna borrow money, interest rates go up. That's why interest rates were so high in the 80s. Why did I go into medical device, medical device industry? Baby boomers, baby boomers, the most active, most wealthy generation in the history of the country. They have great insurance. They have disposable income. They want to continue to be active. Orthopedic implants, great market to be in. You guys are in the financial industry, wealthiest generation in history. That's a great place to be in. I was just reading an article this morning. So typically 25 to 35, that's like your, your big demographic that's going to be renters. We are in that right now with the millennials, which if you measure it, it's spread out over a larger time period, the baby boomers, but the millennials are the largest generation that this country has ever had. And they are renting. We are short over 4 million units, or I'm sorry, we have to build over 4 million units to maintain the supply and keep up with demand this decade. So we're, we're having a hard time doing that. 
So look for that. Number two, where are they moving? So you look at the demographic trends. And oh, by the way, I left out baby boomers. They're the, they are also driving the rental trend now as they downsize. It's one of the reasons I like self-storage. You downsize, you move, you can't buy a house, you can't buy all the house that you want. You know, these are all great things for the self-storage industry. What areas of the country? So you have to decide, all right, what is my strategy based upon demographics? I think multifamily, I think obviously, you know, all the areas that we've talked about are great based upon the demographic trends. What areas of the country are going to benefit? So I, I wrote this on my blog. You can, you can look it up and go research through there as well. But you can just look at uh, United Van Lines. They do a survey every year and you can see the states that are growing the fastest. This isn't going to come as a surprise to many people. California, Illinois, the Northeast, you know, the, the Rust Belt, they're, they're losing population. The Sun Belt, the Southeast, Texas, Florida, uh, Colorado are gaining population. So, you know, you look at those states and you say, okay, do I have an operator that understands these trends and has built a strategy out around, the, around these underlying demographic trends? And then, you know, if you, if you find an operator that understands that and that fits with what, what you're comfortable investing in from a large demo, demographic tide, you know, perspective, then you can say, what strategy suits you? So personally, I like cash flow value add assets. So everything we buy is typically cash flow positive from day one. That's going to lower the risk. It's kind of like the Warren Buffett strategy of investing. And it's kind of sexy like Warren Buffett. It's not super sexy. You know, if you want to get into development and things that are going to um, be a little more exciting, potentially higher returns, you're going to probably have higher risk. You know, cryptocurrencies, um, you know, spec, specul speculating in the stock market and doing those things, you know, that's going to produce little cash flow, but it's going to produce potentially, you know, bigger returns. So see what, see what fits your particular personality, but then also where are you in life? If you need cash flow, what we do might be a good fit. If you don't need cash flow and you just want, you know, you, you just want super high returns and you're willing to take a ton of risk, maybe you get into venture capital. Um, or, or you want to trade cryptocurrency. But a lot of people, whether they're looking for cash flow or they're looking for diversification, find a lot of value in income producing real estate. Um, and then finally, you know, when you speak to those operators, figure out, do they have a track record? You know, do they have a history? Do they have um, people that you can talk to that, that uh, have, worked, have worked with them before you know, and speak to those people? And look, you don't have to know all this stuff, Alex to really answer your question, but the operator, the syndicators you work with should be able to answer all these questions. And we're actually coming out with a syndication course to help investors walk through everything and then ultimately have a tool, a checklist, a worksheet to go through all these things and ultimately build out a plan to truly achieve financial independence. I think that's a really good point that you bring up of, you know, talking to the the people that are putting organizing the deal. Uh, you know, you, anyone can read, you know, a deal sheet and say, okay, great. But talking to someone and asking them and getting their anecdotes and experience and feeling comfortable with the people that are going to be stewards of your money is probably, you know, maybe a better use of your time than trying to get, you know, go through all of the different, you know, studies and, and research. You know, you should you should be you as the limited partner should be the one that can get glean and get that information from the people that are, are steering the boat. Um, obviously do your own research, make sure you understand what you're investing in. But at the end of the day, they're the ones making the decisions for your money and making sure they constantly understand what they're doing is probably a pretty good thing to punch off your checklist when looking at it and analyzing a particular deal. Right. 
Absolutely. And look, look at the deal last. The numbers don't matter as much as all the other things that I just mentioned. And here's why. I can, I can take my spreadsheet and I can change it on the back end and I can make the numbers look really, really pretty. But if I can't explain how I got those numbers or why it makes sense, then that's a problem to your point. So I had a deal sent to me. It was a population in this town that this deal was of 20,000 people. It was like a college. It basically was the size of a college town. And I asked the investor, I said, why are you interested in this deal? It's like a 200 unit multifamily deal. He said, oh, I, I, or like, why, I'm sorry, why are you invested in this town? He said, well, I'm, I don't have a particular interest in the town, but you know, the deal looks good. Like, well, who are you going to sell it to? Like, not a lot of people are going to buy a big multifamily property in, in a little town like that, you know? And what if, what if the university um, goes under, the, the factory in that town goes under, didn't have a big economic base, didn't have a ton of people, um, you know, all, all these things. It's like, you know, what if, you know, what if the, what if the big, um, you know, the one big employer decides to leave because they don't like the, um, you know, the, the policies of the state, like all those things matter a lot, a lot more than like, Hey, what, what do I think my total return is going to be on this little deal that the broker. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point to bring up. Um, and I think that kind of rounds off, you know, the, the general, like, you know, one, two, three punch list of someone that's maybe just, you know, at a high level looking to transition again and get that scalability for their real estate investing. I like to kind of punch with you a few questions um, on some of the more interesting asset classes that you brought up. So I've, I've not talked to anyone specifically uh, that's done car washes. I know their commercial multi, their commercial properties and, you know, they're popping up all around me. So they've got to be making some money for some people. Uh, so I like to kind of talk to you about that and what those deals look like and, and, you know, why you necessarily decided to maybe get into that space uh, in general. But one thing before we do, um, you know, move past that is another interesting part of commercial multifamily. And um, you didn't mention that you did it is assisting living, assisted living facilities as well. You talk yes. about maybe when we're downsizing, that is a huge growth um, area with people, you know, talk about, you know, you said like, you know, you need 4 million units to satisfy demand over the next decade. That is going to be a huge one um, as people, you know, transition into needing more assisted living. Um, that's one area that I just anecdotally see being a huge opportunity for growth. But again, that's going to be the more of the play on development. You know, there, you know, there is not enough and you're more of the people are going to be making development or a lot of value add, a lot of rehab on existing stuff. So, you know, there might be some more risk, but there's probably a lot of money to be made in that area. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so let's let's break it into a couple different buckets here. So first, you have you have you know your stable institutional quality assets like you know these large multifamily deals, self storage deals, or self storage portfolios, which is what we do. We wrap them up into um, a portfolio and a fund is how we offer our self storage. So you're going to have a stable income producing property with a very high quality resident or or renter um, base in those properties. So you're going to see really solid cash flow. You're going to see low volatility. You're going to see solid overall returns. Um, you can move into development with some different opportunities like you talk about, but really the other big bucket, and this, this encompasses um, car washes, short-term rentals, um, hotels, uh, as well as senior housing or assisted living facilities, which again, I'm a big fan of that this decade as well. The demographics do not lie. I talk about it. I've got a blog post on that. Alex, so we're definitely uh, vibing there. But all these things have one thing in common. They have an operational component, okay? That means there's more stuff to screw up that you can fix 
if you're a good operator. Um, there's more variables, but that means there should be higher returns if you do those things properly. They all have an underlying real estate base, but you have to, have to, have to have a highly successful and knowledgeable operator in all of those to make money. If you do not, you are going to see more risk and you're going to see lower returns. So again, we're talking about real estate without an operational component. And then we're talking about, you know, senior housing or, or slash assisted living, short-term rentals or hotels, um, as well as car washes. And all of these things have one thing in common. They have the real estate plus the operational business. Um, let me transition because I know we're coming up on, on the end of our time here. So how do you, how do you benefit from these, right? First off, look at the demographics. The car washes, private equity is jumping into them. Why is there an opportunity here? One, it's a highly fractured business. 85% of car washes are owned by, by operators with five or less car washes, okay? These aren't professionals. These aren't big groups. There is not a large third-party operator out there that you can go hire and just bring in. Um, there's not a ton of them out there. Um, so we built our team from the ground up. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of money to make that happen. If you can go and find individual or small portfolios of car washes, you can improve their operations, which means you lower their operating costs. You can improve revenue by improving sales, improving um, you know, the, the rates and optimizing the flow of traffic in there. And then also one of the things we do, so our, our um, car wash brand is called Hurricane Car Wash. If you can brand them and package them together, you can achieve a 50% to 100% premium on the multiple when you sell those. So again, you have cash flow from day one, you have opportunities to become more efficient, and then you have the opportunity to multiply your exit number by packaging them together as a brand. And that is how we've built, in our mind, a successful strategy in the car wash space. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because, you know, I've talked to a lot of different people on a lot of different asset classes and that's, that's a really interesting take on, on that. So it's that one, it's a real estate and operational play then. So you have the, the aspect component of improving efficiency, sales and, and revenues while also getting, you know, a tangible asset, not just kind of having, you know, an ethereal widget sales on Amazon or something, you have something you can reach out and touch. Um, with, you know, the added security of that, the, the business acquisition then being backed by a chunk of real estate. So, you know, again, if something goes terribly wrong, you still have, you know, a, a piece of land that's the underlying security to that. So that's, that's really kind of interesting. Now, if you're putting together like a deal for that, what does that look like for you? How many do you package together in a particular deal? Or do you have like a deal that's going out and actively acquiring them and raising capital as you go? Yeah, good question. So we are typically buying small portfolios or packaging them into small portfolios. So typically, you're seeing like two to nine, um, you, know, you know, somewhere under ten, but you know, more than one um, <laughs> is kind of the, is kind of the number at this point that we're packaging together. And it depends, you know, um, it depends on how they come in. It depends on the region. So um, the deal that we're going to be closing here this month is is six car washes in one major city in the southeast. And, you know, that deal is taking all six of those together as a portfolio and investors are getting the benefit of having, you know, operational um, assets in there from day one, but also some diversity as well in terms of locations. 
Yeah, that's really cool. So like you said, you know, kind of getting up there on time, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd appreciate the kind of trajectory you went of, you know, getting started and then, you know, leaving people with, with a nugget of a, a new asset class that, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years and I hadn't had anyone come up to me and talk about car washes. So always good to, to see something new out there, uh, or I shouldn't say car washes are new, but just, you know, a, a different flavor in the uh, commercial real estate uh, business. Uh, even though if it is a little bit more of a business play. So uh, before we uh, let everyone go, um, how do people get in touch with you and uh, what's your uh, contact information? Yeah, I appreciate that again, Alex. Thank you guys for the opportunity to be on with you today. Hopefully, if you're listening, you, you found some value here. Check out our website. So much for, for free up on the website, nextlevelincome.com. Again, if you um, missed it there, you can get a free copy of my book by clicking on the book link. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about whatever we do, there's an invest link, or you can reach out directly to me at chris at nextlevelincome.com. All righty. Thank you very much. This has been another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perny, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.